You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today we've got a very special Easter show. In fact, when I was checking over my Facebook memories this morning, I realized I interviewed this person exactly three years ago today. It was a much briefer one, but now he's back again. I'll just talk about Easter and the resurrection of Jesus. And in fact, when I contacted him, he said, you know what? I'm going to study that topic just for you. Oh, so that's really nice there. My guest this week is Gary Habermas. He's got a PhD from Michigan State University. He's a distinguished research professor and chair of the Department of Philosophy at Liberty University. He has published 40 books, half of them on the subject of Jesus' resurrection, plus more than 70 chapters or articles in other books, plus over 100 articles for journals and other publications. He has also taught courses at about 15 other graduate schools. Uh, Dr. Habermas, welcome back to the Deeper Waters podcast. Well, Nick, it's always good to be with you. Good mm-hmm. to hear from you again. Now, if by chance some people in my audience might not know who you are, can you tell us a little bit personally about how you got to be doing what you're doing? Well, I've been doing a lot of interviews lately, so I, I tell this kind of this story over and over, but... I didn't get into the resurrection because I wanted to enlighten the world or something. Um, I got into it just for personal uh, doubts, let's say. Mm. And they dominated my life for, oh, uh, 10 years. And then, and then the kind of, you know, mixed over the next 15 years after that. So 10 straight years. And did a number of years off and on, and my friends would kind of come alongside me and and say, "Well, hey, have you checked this evidence, or have you checked that evidence, or <clears throat> what about uh, you know? You can give a list. What, what what about arguments for intelligent design, or what about they didn't call it intelligent design in those days, but." Uh, what about that? Or what about reliability of the Bible? Or what about archaeology? Or have you looked at prophecy? Or, hey, did you hear that they found secret Josephus lately? And and and, and some of these are just kind of goofy, like the secret Josephus and things like that. So I kind of checked a lot of these out, and some of them I just thought were lousy arguments. Some of them made sense, but they weren't clinchers. And then one day, I was... Uh, studying a book for my doubts and I was reading this uh, account of the resurrection I thought well that's interesting because the guy gave just the most you know the the briefest of comments about how we know Jesus was raised from the dead and so on and I thought you know if Jesus was raised from the dead that could bear the weight of Christian truth 
that could answer my questions for me, which Nick at the time, mm-hmm. I didn't even, I didn't even know what I was after besides Christianity. But I realized it was concerning whether there was uh, an afterlife, whether there was meaning beyond this world, and and uh, so I thought, all right, this much I can I can tell the the resurrection has the potential to do that kind of thing, but I did not know if I could tell whether or not it occurred. So that launched me into my study, and it was a purely selfish kind of... I didn't think anybody else in the world cared about that kind of stuff, but but uh, I did that, and uh, here we are today. Now, I understand that next month there was supposed to be a movie hitting our theater is called God's Not Dead 2, and you have a part of that. Can you tell us about that? Well, yeah, I do. I, I want to be real clear. It's just a little cameo. It's not, mm-hmm. you know, it's not a quote-unquote acting um, place. In fact... We don't we don't get to see you doing a musical number? Ha, ha, ha. A tap dance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, no, it's not a very... Um, it, it's. It, I, I would just call it a cameo. Uh, in fact, there's a cast, there's a cast party uh, coming up, and I refused a chance to even go to it because I just don't think what I did was, you know, very much worthwhile. But, but yeah, the the first one, um, I'm not good on these stats, but I've heard estimates counting, um, <clears throat> you know, when the DVD came out and everything, that the first God is not dead was seen by 25 million people. And I remember looking at my daily newspaper, they usually give a ranking of the movies. And I remember one week when Nationwide, I think it was Nationwide, it, the first one was number two in the mm-hmm. nation. And just recently, our same paper gave a preview of what's coming this spring and how many you know blockbusters there are and, and pretty much just highlighted the big ones. And God is Not Dead 2 was, was one of the, once they highlighted in a secular movie review. So I, I hope it's going to get some attention. Um, I don't even know the whole storyline. tell you the truth, I know roughly what happens. But all I did was I, I went to Arkansas and shot two scenes. They cut one of them out entirely. Mm-hmm. And the other one, uh, they edited down. And actually mm-hmm. what I do is myself and another fellow the guy who wrote the book for the two movies, mm-hmm. uh, we were interviewed by Mike Huckabee, mm-hmm. not other than the presidential candidate until yeah. recently. Mm-hmm. And he interviewed the two of us because uh, he used to have a television show. And I think they made the interview look like we were guests on his television show, and then the whole thing was transferred into the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen what they ended up with, but I understand they even edited the second scene. Mm-hmm. Now, I also hear that you're writing a magnum opus on the resurrection. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, it's kind of the... uh, It is presently the... by far the biggest ministry concern in my life. Um, Michael Cohen had been pushing me for oh, probably two or three years, mm-hmm. start writing this. And I just I just didn't 
it was too daunting. I, I just didn't want to get into it. And and um, I was even with Daryl Bach one time. He and I were doing a television program together, and we were off the air. And he just frankly said to me, he said, Gary, I'm just going to, I'm just going to make a prediction. You're never going to write it. And and that kind of bugged me because he had done a, a, a huge commentary on Luke. And I think he said it took him something like 17 years. Now, the the difference for me is that, of course, I've done the vast majority of the the research on this thing. But, but I'm a two-finger typist still, Nick, and... Hmm. and Typing or editing, what I'm estimating is probably going to come in at, you know, three thousand pages. Yeah. Um, daunting is not the word for this. It's more like like nightmare. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, I'm estimating uh, three volumes. I'm estimating um, uh, about. It's hard to know on this end, but. 3,000, 3,500 pages, three volumes, maybe 800 to 1,000 pages each. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm working away. I'm at about page 650, and any, lest anybody think, oh, he just take, he's taking old material and just working through it. I am going to do some of that, but I haven't started that. So the 650 is pretty much 100%, 95%, let's say, from scratch. And um, it's taken me about two years. So my friends can't be expecting this to show up on their bookshelves this summer, can they? Yeah, this summer or when they retire. (laughs) You know what? Talk about retiring, Nick. Somebody wrote me an email. I forgot who it was. But Mm -hmm. somebody wrote me an email about a year ago, and he said, he said, hey, can you let me know when this thing gets closer to publication because I'm going to take out a second mortgage on my house. (laughs) (laughs) Now. I also have to ask a question that I'm sure everyone else is wondering about this magnum opus, and that's when you get done, if the book doesn't sell well, are you just going to instead compensate by starting a dating service for young apologists? Because I understand you have a pretty good career with that. I did. <laughs> I dabbled once or twice in my whole life, and, and, and you, you, Nick Peters, are a dabble <laughs> Yes, for those who don't know, I, I say that because Gary Habermas is the one who introduced me to my wife. And not only did he introduce us, he performed the ceremony and married us. Yeah. In fact, we, we kept it above board because when I introduced her to you, she wasn't in the room. I was just talking about her. And we had just finished praying for her as a class, as I recall, a seminary class. Hmm. I did not know that part. Yeah, you stopped in. I was teaching a class at uh, Southern Evangelical Seminary, mm-hmm. and I, I don't think you were a student, but you stopped in that night and spent some time with us, and I opened up the class by talking about some prayer requests, and that's when you uh, you asked me, could you contact her? And I said, mm-hmm. you know, you'll have, to, you'll have to write to her family. I don't, I don't mm-hmm. control her life. So. Mm-hmm. And things moved ever quickly from that point. Things moved on quickly since that time, yes, sir. Well, now we need to get into the matter of the resurrection, though, of Christ. And I think most of my audience would be pretty convinced that Jesus died on the cross, but we could have someone come on maybe later sometime to talk about the swoon theory that Muslims hold. But can we just pretty much say that pretty much today no one holds to the swoon theory, do they? 
Um, it has been a long time since so I've checked my stats. I have notes on where scholarship is from 1975 to date, and the notes... Uh, between my grad assistant and myself are presently at 1,200 pages, and it's it's not it's not a script like a book script. It's simply a list of where everybody is on this topic. And I remember checking maybe a year or two ago, and I only have of 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 uh, all the hundreds of scholars in this study, I think I have five people. And that might be a, that might be an exaggeration, but when you talk about thirty five hundred sources and five mm-hmm. scholars hold the swoon theory, and I could probably mention um, if I started talking about the scholars, people would probably say, "Man, where did you where did you get these names? I've never heard of these people." Um, and by the way, when I say five, that doesn't mean they hold it as if to say. While this is true, there some of them are skeptics that just put it out there and say, "Hey, why couldn't this be true?" But it's not necessarily their view. Okay. So, and even so, we get up to like I said, a half dozen. So, I think we need to say something about scholars. Also, a lot of people coming this year say, "Well, most scholars in this field are Christians, so of course we're going to hold to this stuff." Yeah, yeah, they do say that, and, and you're right because I know you're a blog. Uh, and website searcher, and mm-hmm. I don't do that stuff. But but um, I hear that. I, I mean, even I, who don't spend my time doing that, have many times the objection that I hear. It goes like this: um, Yeah, but look, these guys might be liberal Christians, but for crying out loud, they're Christians. So mm-hmm. you know, uh, how can you be a Christian and not believe X, Y, Z? So therefore. No surprise, they don't believe X, Y, Z. Well, Nick, it's funny you should mention that. Without without any um, you know thought of uh, maybe you asking me that or something like that, I was walking around my house just like 10 days ago, and I thought, hey, what about that objection? So I got this little sheet of paper, and to tell you the honest truth, I don't know where it is. <laughs> I don't know which pile of papers it's in. But I sat down, and I made a list of how many scholars that I could think of right off the top of my head are either atheists, agnostics, or otherwise unbelievers. Maybe they're Jewish scholars, but the requirement, whenever I do this, my requirement is that the person be a scholar in the field. They know the data. Now, my ideal definition of a scholar would be something like uh, they have a terminal degree, they hopefully hold a teaching position. They hopefully have peer-reviewed or other publications. And they, this is the area of their doctor's degree is apropos to study the resurrection. For example, I don't, I don't begrudge Richard Carrier to be a member of this group because he has a relevant Ph.D. Mm-hmm. Uh, in classics or ancient history, if you prefer, and um, that's fine. But there has to be something relevant. The PhD can't be in mechanical engineering, let's say. Mm-hmm. All right, now, so I start scribbling the names. 
How many do I know who are non-Christians? In other words, they are not people who would say, well, you know, they're liberal Christians. And I came up, as I recall, the list numbered 25 scholars long. And some of them are incredibly influential today, very influential. And um, to hear that whole list is to realize these guys just don't have uh, a, a Christian or a liberal Christian axe to grind. They're not Christians at all. And they will tell you. Some of them just say, I mean, I know a fair number of these people. Some of them will just say, I'm not a person of faith. I don't have any kind of faith. I don't believe. I'm an agnostic. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, yeah, the, uh, the objection doesn't work by a mile. Yeah, that sounds like just a... 25 out of, you know, hundreds or thousands that you're looking for. That that what, Nick? That sounds like just, <clears throat> it sounds like you've got hundreds or thousands of scholars that you're going through and you're saying, I found 25 who aren't Christians. Yeah, are you saying that's not a large number or it is a surprisingly large number? It, it, a lot of skeptics ever say, well, that's not a large number. you still got the majority of scholars in this field who are Christians. And you believe that Jesus rose physically from the dead? Well, I'm sure you want to talk about this. You know, I I'm, I kind of invented the uh, minimal facts argument when I was doing my doctoral dissertation at Michigan State back in the 70s. And I uh -huh. guess if that were your objection, I would make a minimal facts sort of move, and I would say, okay, Nick. Well, for, first of all, 25 isn't the number. 25 is how many names I wrote down in five minutes. Uh -huh. Um. But if if you said, if your objection is, not yours, but you know what I mean, if your objection is, yeah, 25 is not very many out of 3,500, I would say, yeah, you're really right. But, you know, Nick, if you want to talk about this, since all of them are scholars in relevant fields, and, the, and I think all of them have publications, relevant publications, mm -hmm. why don't we just talk about the 25 and why they hold facts X, Y, and Z, and why they, you know, think that this theory is true in spite of the fact that they're not believers. So, in other words, if you wanted to shorten the database and only talk about 25 or maybe 50 or 70 scholars, yeah, let's do it. You still have to answer why mm -hmm. these guys are all scholars, most of them pretty very well known, published, don't hold any views, certainly not Christianity, but they hold these facts relative to the resurrection. Now I think we've got a lot better point. Okay, well, to get some Christian scholars also, a lot of people say, well, we can't trust Christian scholarship because, you know, these people teach at seminaries. And they have statements of faith that they have to hold to, and if they go against those statements of faith, when they lose their livelihood. So their, their research is, you know, it's set before they even begin. Yeah, and Nick, I, I, I love that objection. I have a have a recent, uh, uh, I guess you could say an encounter, um, I went through some reading with one of the major journals. Mm -hmm. I'll just say, it was the journal for the uh, study of the historical Jesus. And um, they did, uh, uh, they published a number of articles uh, not too many years ago on the subject, can evangelicals contribute anything to historical Jesus studies in light of their statements of faith and whatnot? And I guess I have at least two major responses. My first one would be, uh, let, let, let's take um, 
a, a, an evangelical scholar who goes away to to England, to Scotland, or something, and does a PhD in New Testament at Aberdeen or Edinburgh or St. Andrews University or whatever, and they've got a degree in New Testament. I, you know, it's any number of people like that. They have a PhD. Now, the skeptic who's posing this argument, they frequently, because I have them write emails to me, and they'll say, well, you've only got 16 guys mentioned holding view X. I can name 16 guys among my own friends. Yeah, you can. That's the problem. They're your friends, and not a single one of them, let's just say, um, maybe two of them have relevant degrees. And then, and then you know what happens? They start shortening the list of what qualifies as a scholar. They shorten it. They'll yeah. say, well, yeah, this guy's a mechanical engineer, but he's been studying the resurrection for 10 years. And... And I try to be kind. I don't jump in and say, yeah, studying from his own picayune skeptical viewpoint and the things he's reading would be considered tracks if evangelicals were reading those kind of things. There's not scholarship. Now, how many of you guys are relevant PhDs? And well, here's an example. Bart Ehrman, an agnostic leaning toward atheism by his own definition, Bart Ehrman says there's only two qualified scholars by his to his knowledge, of guys who have degree, relevant degrees and relevant publications to be considered scholars. And I think he's talking about uh, Richard Carrier and Bob Price. Bob's got two PhDs. Mm -hmm. um, I think he's talking about them. Now, he's kind enough to You're say, talking about mythicists who are considered to be scholars, right? What's that, Nick? You're talking about mythicists considered to be scholars, right? People who uh, deny Jesus existed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's mythicist. Yes, I couldn't hear your word. Yeah. Yes, mythicist. Um, and and Bart is kind enough, and I do the same thing. Bart is kind enough to say, now, there's these two guys with really good degrees, and they're really sharp guys. And here's five more. He says at one point, here's I don't know the exact number, but it's about five. He says, here's five more who ought to be read. And they make some worthwhile points, but they don't—they don't meet the criteria of what a scholar is. But we'll count them because they're making some considerations. Now, here's the interesting thing, Nick. I would not count an evangelical with the same kind of credentials. Let's mm -hmm. say they have a bachelor's degree, and because they're writing, they have some influence, but they don't have any relevant this or that. And, and I've, I've written before, I've published in, you know, articles or whatever, that I am actually more lenient, easily, in counting the skeptics than I am in counting the evangelicals. And they could say, well, yeah, but still, those evangelicals are all prejudiced. And that gets me my, to my second point. My, my first point is, what are you going to do when the evangelicals in a relevant field with a PhD with publications and... And the people who peer-reviewed them, in that case, they said they were good publications, and the guy who approved it was for a non-evangelical journal. Now, how can you not count them as scholars? Okay, that's the one objection. The second one is, in a way, it's a continuation. I am less 
stringent on the skeptics than I am on the evangelicals. Mm -hmm. The second objection is it's an epistemic problem, and it goes like this. So I'm prejudiced because I'm a believer, but you're not prejudiced because you're an unbeliever. Let's just say the person I'm talking to is an atheist. They have this sad, mistaken view that no, virtually nobody but, I'll just say nobody but them agrees with. They're the only ones mm-hmm. that I know of. And their objection is, no, listen to what I'm saying. Theism is a noun that describes a view, and theist is a person who holds to that view. Mm-hmm. I am an atheist, which simply means I don't hold the view. So no, I don't hold the worldview. I'm telling you what I don't hold. And it's such a silly objection. I was in a debate with a guy one time, and I don't usually, you know, you know, give give what I would consider to be kind of low blows. But this guy kept saying that. He kept saying, I'm an atheist. I simply don't agree with what you believe. But I don't have a worldview. You do. And I finally told him, I said, have you ever, he was a classic scholar, and it wasn't Richard Carrier. Mm-hmm. But I said, I said, have you ever taken a course in philosophy? I said, you know what? You need one course in philosophy. Probably an intro course would do it, which is kind of a low blow. But I said, probably an intro, uh, intro course would do it. But nobody's walking around on this earth who doesn't have a look at the world through a certain color of glasses. We all have spectacles that are yellow or pink or blue. That's through which we see the world. So for a, for a blue spectacle people, the world looks blue. And for yellow, they look it looks yellow, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we all have our angle. And to give me this baloney about you're an atheist, therefore you're just not me, and you don't have a worldview, <laughs> is silliness. You say the things you say because you don't want it to be true. You know, it was Anthony Flew, Nick, who said to me years ago when he was an atheist, I mean, way before his quote-unquote conversion. This is when we um, dialogued for the first time at Liberty, 1985. And and I said I said to him, do you think religion is the opiate of the people, um, or do you think it's a, the grand illusion, you know, to cite people like Marx or Freud? And he said, no, I don't think that at all. Um, he said, "He said, here's the way I look at it. He said, you believe because you want to believe. I don't believe because I don't want to believe. We each have something to gain by holding the view we hold, and then we look at everything through those glasses. He said, uh, no, you're, I'm no less prejudiced than you are. Now, that's the proper mm-hmm. response. We're all prejudiced because we all have angles, you know. All I got to do is ask you, uh, Nick, what nationality are you? Um, what country do you live in? What state do you live in? What, what's your wife's name? Oh, you're not married? Oh, well, how many kids do you have? How many? Every time you answer those questions, you tell me the angles in your life, and you're going to make decisions that are good for your family, your children, your faith. Your, you don't want somebody to be disappointed with you. Um, we're all like that. So mm-hmm. to say that Christians are prejudiced and they're not, it it burns me to be frank because it shows you they're not they're not thinking straight. 
But uh, to be honest, I kind of already knew that before we start talking. Well, let's get into the data about Jesus now. We have Jesus. He's on the cross. He's dead. And now it comes time to bury him. But is there really any reason to think he was buried in a tomb? Because, you know, so many people, they were just buried in... Buried in, in the ground, a dirt grave was dug, and just piled them up on top of one another or something. And, you know, Paul doesn't mention a tomb at all. That doesn't happen until we get to Mark. Well, yes and no. Um, I don't know which one of those you want me to take first. Uh, remind me if I don't say enough about Paul. But, okay. Um, okay, here's the argument for the Jesus wasn't born... It wasn't buried in a tomb. Um, I would say, and it's got it's got a little bit of weight. The average Jews in the first century were not born in. Um, <laughs> I said born again. <laughs> average Jews are not buried in tombs. Mm -hmm. Tombs, limestone tombs, soft soft rock tombs were pretty much relegated for the rich, and they were pretty much relegated to the Jerusalem area. The most common Jewish burial was in a rectangular hole in the ground. Mm -hmm. now, I mean, neatly, they treated bodies respectfully, but nonetheless, the dead body goes in the ground, and that's that. Um, if you're in a rock tomb, you could be reburied a year later um, in a so-called bone box, a a box made out of of uh, stone with a lid, and they often scratch the name of the person or put designs on it and so on. So, it is true, you're talking about a minority of people that get buried in individual graves. Mm -hmm. uh, and you're talking about a minority of geographical places, mostly Jerusalem. Uh, but, having said that, oh, by the way, complicate that with another argument for the other side, Jesus was crucified, and mm -hmm. crucifixion was considered a curse. All you got to do is read Deuteronomy on that, and it's a curse. Cursed is the man who hangs on a tree, and crucifixion, we don't think of it as hanging, but it is hanging, and um, all right, so you're cursed. So could they have thrown your body into a pit? That's just about, there's not a whole lot more that could be said for the view that, not that we have evidence that Jesus was buried somewhere else but in a tomb, but that there's a good chance he was because that's what happened to people whose bodies weren't claimed. All right, uh, several issues with, uh, with this. Uh, first of all, even Josephus tells us that when people, victims, Jewish victims of capital punishment, they were buried still because of the Jewish respect for bodies. The people that got thrown on the trash heaps were people whose bodies weren't claimed. If you wanted to come forward and claim the body, just like just like Scripture says that um, two men, Joseph, and then uh, John mentions Nicodemus, decided to uh, make a plea for the body, and they were granted uh, that right. Mm -hmm. um, they could be they could be given the body because that's the way the Jews are. First of all. Pilate was reckless in how he treated people. Nonetheless, he he was he had been chewed out by the emperor for 
doing silly things that would incite the Jews to riot, and people just wanted to let them live and let live. He he didn't have an, a reason not to give the body, and we're told that that Jews had the right to claim the bodies even of of quote unquote criminals, especially when their family half the time didn't believe they were criminal. Um, so that that's one exception to this that they could they could claim the body, and it's hardly imaginable that Jesus could walk the countryside have his reputation and be thrown on a grave because nobody wanted to claim the body because they were embarrassed. I mean, that, that's just so far away. Now, when you move to the to the tomb, the issue is that while he could have been buried in a rectangular hole, while in crazy circumstances he may have been thrown on a pile, we don't want the body to just rot and nobody's claiming this body so what do we do with it that wouldn't be jesus but but um while those are possible positions the all the evidence we have says he was buried in a separate tomb now this would take a while nick and of course you, you you decide whether you want to go into this or not but but when skeptics look skeptical scholars that's the key whenever i say skeptics i mean scholars mm-hmm. um when they look at the gospels they look at independent sources and here's the way the christian thinks oh well matthew mark luke and john all say jesus was buried in a tomb so that's four okay for the most part as i tell my grad students if it's in mark it's mark that's a duh you know but if mm-hmm. it's in matthew that's Mark. If it's Luke, that's Mark. If they are borrowing from Mark and they, they look to use Mark as one of their major sources. Okay, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke could be counted as one. All right, then John is a two count because John is a separate source. Um, now, there are sections in Luke and Mark that are uh, Luke and uh, Matthew that are not in Mark. Mm-hmm. And we call the ones in Matthew M and the ones in Luke L. So if you put them all together, we have five gospel sources, according to critical scholars, um, Mark, M, L, John, and then a, a, a Sains uh, source, which nobody's ever found, and maybe it's not even written down, who knows. But it's a list of sayings of Jesus, and that's just called Q. Mm-hmm. That's five. The Gospels, just right off, right off the top of uh, anyone's uh, research charts here, the Gospels right away are not one source. There are at least two. You have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then John. That's two. But you also have material in Matthew, that's M, and material in Luke, that's L, and so scholars are not agreed as to how many different sources they have, but of five possible sources, the number of tomb stories in the five and the four gospels, the number is put at of the five sources, the number is put at three or four independent sources. So mm-hmm. a, crit, a critic could say, "Well, it's in the Bible." Well, I shouldn't say, it. yeah, a critic, not a critical scholar, but a critic could say, "That's in the Bible." But uh, the the issue with that is, uh, yeah, first of all, there are facts that are in the Bible. There's still facts. In fact, ask Bart Ehrman. We should talk about this, Nick. But if yeah, when when if 
if you think you're stumping an evangelical scholar by saying you're using verses, you're just showing that you're not a critical scholar. Because if you talk to a Morris Casey or a Barterman or, or James a, Crossley, James Crossley, if you talk to these people, Gart Ludeman, any number of these people, Paula Fredrickson, if you talk to these people, if you don't cite the New Testament, they will. They will. Why do they cite the New Testament? Well, of course, they're only going to cite, and the, and the critic says, oh, that's because they're liberal Christians. No, I cited people who are Jewish or agnostic scholars. The reason they cite verses is because they know which ones are critically accepted and critically evidenced and those which are not. And so they're, going to ex they're only going to allow, they don't cite the New Testament as being inspired, they cite the New Testament as being critically ascertained, the part mm -hmm. that's ascertained. And so it's just false to say, yeah, well, I have Jewish customs on my side and you only have the Gospels. Well, <laughs> that, that's like saying, uh, I have general evidence and you have specific evidence. And specific evidence usually trumps general evidence. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that's just a little introduction to this. But basically... That's why we have the, the best uh, conclusion is to say that Jesus was buried in a rock tomb. It's the only, the only specific evidence. Now, I ask you to remind me about Paul. Yeah. Uh, in Acts chapter 13, there are, there are a number of little creedal passages. We can talk about this later, too, if you want, mm -hmm. um, which is probably the most outstanding evidence in the New Testament. M material, and I will almost always cite critical scholars. I don't cite evangelicals to make my conclusions. Um, and Bart Ehrman puts the majority, or at least a number of these early creedal passages in the 30 to 32 year range. So, he, you know, basically, another way to say this is, these are pre-Pauline sources. And pre-Pauline sources um, are, in this case, prior to Paul's conversion. If you put Paul's conversion at plus two, that is two years after the cross, these things, these sources are in that two-year gap. Anyway, there's a number of these in the book of Acts. They're called mm -hmm. sermon summaries. Bart Ehrman says they belong in the 30s AD, dated in the 30s. That's 50 years earlier than skeptics date the book of Acts. Okay, well, there's one in Acts chapter 13, where Paul is speaking, and Paul talks about burying the body of Jesus. But unlike David, uh, who was buried and his body remained in the ground, Jesus was buried in a tomb, and he emerged from the tomb. That's called the resurrection. Well, that's... For those who allow the Acts sermon summaries, which are... I'd say a majority of critical scholars, including a number of those non-Christian ones that I mentioned, that's Paul, at least a sermon attributed to Paul, that's a Pauline sermon that acknowledges the empty tomb. So that there is a source. If you, I know you probably, I mean, you had to mean, um, first of all, what critics say, not what you say. And secondly, uh, 
you're talking about his epistles. And right, yeah. he doesn't he doesn't talk he talks about the burial, but he doesn't talk about the empty tomb. But Acts thirteen, that's precisely what he seems to be talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what about though first Corinthians fifteen? That's supposed to be the main one and you think sure he'd want to emphasize, hey, there was an empty tomb right there and he doesn't say anything about it. Yeah. Um well if I were given a list of six or eight evidences for the empty tomb, and, and by the way, I gave a, I delivered a paper to a professional society meeting um, six months ago, and the paper was 21 evidences for the empty tomb, and every one of my 21 arguments, every evidence was critically ascertained. I didn't use things that didn't pass critical um, muster. And if I were only going to use six or eight of those, I would use that First Corinthians 15. Paul says, I gave you what I was given. And this is the most, this is the most famous of the early creeds of, of all. And I can give any number of citations and, and um, mm-hmm. comments where critics put this thing within, like Harry, Larry Hurtado says of Edinburgh University, Hurtado says days, days after the uh, Easter event. Yeah, days later. So it's very, very early. And 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 in these early passages, you have 1 Corinthians 15. And, and here's what Paul says. I gave you what I was given, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, was buried and rose the third day, according to the scriptures, he says that twice, and then appeared. And here's this famous list of appearances. Now, if the Jewish view, as the majority position probably uh, is today, that the Jews believed, it, it is the majority position, that the Jews believed in bodily resurrection, bodily resurrection. Mm-hmm. And you say to a Jew, let, let's follow this argument, uh, if you believe bodies rise, and I'm not just talking about Jesus, I'm talking about the end of time. Yeah. If you believe bodies rise, then then let's let's take this argument. I deliver unto you that which I also received, how the Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Okay, so he's on the cross, so he's upright, but he's dead. Um, he died. He was buried, so now he's prone. Wherever he's put, he's prone. Died upright buried down and raised so now he's upright again and appeared so now people are seeing him what is the what is the 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 condition of a person who is dead buried rose and appeared if your view is bodily resurrection not that the spirit rises and has nice little glorified light, light version appearances to people, you know, except for Paul on the road to Damascus, and that's years later, a couple years later, except for Paul, light, light is not associated with the actual appearances of Jesus. It's just a normal man walking into a room, or as I often say, um, they knew they went to his funeral, but they saw him buying a loaf of bread in the supermarket uh, three days later. I mean, they were very mundane events. But anyway, back to the, it was the body that's raised. If you have a position of someone who's dead, buried, rose, and appeared, 
guess what? Something happened to the body. Mm-hmm. That's the clear implication. So it seems like Paul acknowledges the empty tomb. You say, well, then why did he talk about it? You know, maybe the empty tomb wasn't a great argument to Paul. We all, we all, um, you know, rate arguments differently. And if Lee Strobel tells the the story in his his uh, case for Christ of a little girl who had died in the 60s, I think maybe during the race riots or something, and the family got permission to exhume the body and to, well, at least to move it. And they dug up the casket, and they opened up the casket, and there was no body there. Well, guess what? The family didn't say, our little darling girl has been raised from the dead. Their first thought was, you see that? They're messing with us again. And our little girl isn't even in the grave that we thought they put her in. Once again, people are playing fast and loose with our rights. Well, Lee Strobel makes a great point. The, the, the first thought it, for empty tomb might be a question mark, but the first thought is not, oh, huh, cool, this person's been raised from the dead. That's not your first thought. And so because there are other circumstances, Paul very much apparently thought, and I agree with him, that the evidences are much better evidence than the empty tomb. By the way, this is just an aside footnote. Um, writing material in those days, papyri, very expensive. Mm-hmm. Very expensive. Most notes, some New Testament scholars make the point that, man, the New Testament epistles, not to mention the Gospels and Acts, the New Testament epistles are really long because most of the notes in those days were little tiny short deals because it's hard to write, it's hard to keep dipping it, it's hard to get the papyri and open up these plants and stick them together. It costs a lot of money. So the New Testament is a very, for the most part, a very succinct work. Mm-hmm. And Paul just could have thought that the appearances are much better evidences, and I agree with him. You know, Reeves, Richard, and Cakes in their book on Rediscovering Paul say that to write First Corinthians would cost about $2,100 today. Is that right? Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. $2,100 would be the equivalent cost today of uh, enough papyri pages stuck together to make the chapters of First Corinthians, right? Mm-hmm. That's, yeah. that's remarkable. Mm-hmm. Well, let's get to, <clears throat> to that tomb, though. I mean, let's suppose it was found empty, which the majority seem to accept. I mean, isn't there any number of things that could happen? I mean, couldn't grave robbers have stolen a body? I mean, most people don't think there were guards there, so anything could have happened between Friday and Sunday. That's right. Now, as I said, your first thought, if you were if you were a family member or a believer, yeah, your first thought might be, whoa, I wonder. That could be your first thought. But chances are reality would set in and you'd go, what if, what if, what if? Now, Nick, just to show the force of this what if thing, there are, let's say, a half dozen major natural theories that have been proposed as possible explanations for what happened to the body that don't involve crucifixion. The interesting thing is that the the major theories are all found in the Gospels. They're all there. Five mm-hmm. major what-ifs. And the second thing that's interesting 
is that three of the five are thought up by believers. Mm-hmm. Mary thinks he's a gardener mm-hmm. and he moved the body. You can be kind and say moved, but you mean, I mean, you may not mean stolen, but she thought he was a gardener and he moved the body. Um, you've got the di- disciples. I love that. Thing. Even the King James translation is pretty cool. In uh, Luke 24, they were terrified and affrighted and supposed they'd seen a spirit. So they thought he was either a wispy ghost or a figment of their imagination. And then thirdly, when the women uh, come back from the tomb in Luke 24 um, and come back and tell the disciples, it said they believed they were spreading idle tales. So it's like, uh, women, would you guys quit gossiping? I mean, you know, get to work or something, but but don't be telling these silly things. Mm-hmm. Um, all of those are thought up in the New Testament. So, so the critics who say, back to that scholarly question, if critics go, well, evangelicals are always believing, I mean, the first thought they think of is supernatural. Really? Of the five suppositions in the Gospels, three of them are thought up by believers. Three by believers and two by unbelievers. Who's the ones asking the best questions? Mm-hmm. Well, what about theories that could explain the empty tomb by other means. I mean, maybe the body was stolen by grave robbers, for instance. Yeah, and you know, if I were an unbeliever, I would I would stick in there somebody unknown. Because the minute you say known, I mean, Bergerman's right in his second from last latest book, uh, How Did Jesus Become God? He's right. He says, Coming up with a naturalistic theory and throwing it out to Christians is like throwing red meat to a hungry dog. They love you to come up with these things mm-hmm. um, because they're ready, and they're all ready to, to, to go after you. It's not our fault that each one of the naturalistic theories is opposed by so many comebacks that almost nobody holds them today. So let, let's, let's do a... Um, Somebody did this dastardly deed, and we have no idea who it was. We just know that that the body was gone, and it was never found, never recovered. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what happened here? Well, there's a lot of things going on, and and uh, the the reasons. Let, let, let's okay. Let me stop one more time. Make a distinction. I talk about two species of stolen body theories. One is the disciples did it, and the other one is anybody else did it. I don't care if it's the maid, the butler, an unknown person. Um, Grave robbers, necromancers. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anybody. So either the, the disciples did it, or anybody did it. And I think the craftiest view is, yeah, somebody we don't know. Um, this is the, what I call fraud fraud is the view. That was the name that was used for it in the early literature, the fraud theory, because they would, if it was the disciples, they stole the body and then lied about the appearances, so that's fraud. Um, But if it's fraud too, that means anybody but the apostles, Mm -hmm. or like um, Merritt's view, that is the gardener. The problem with this, fraud too, is that it does almost nothing. The only thing it explains for all intent purposes is the empty tomb oh yeah that's big that's big but you know what i didn't know you were bringing this up 
And I already said five, ten minutes ago that Paul might have thought that the empty tomb wasn't the best evidence in the world. It mm-hmm. doesn't prove uh, crucifixion. I mean, I mean, it doesn't prove resurrection. I just told the story about the little girl mm-hmm. in Lee Strobel's book. So, all right. So, fraud two would explain the empty tomb. But that's all it explains. Here's what I mean. Here's the joke of fraud two, somebody other than disciples. What if the gardener took the body, he's going to be pious, and he's going to rebury it, and he thinks they need to do some work on the garden there, and they don't want people trampling it, so they're going to put it back in the tomb pretty soon. First of all, that was not the Jewish view. You don't play around with dead bodies. They're They're unclean then you have to go through an unclean process and so on. But, but, you know, let's forget all that. Let's say he's a Gentile, and he took it, and he put it in his living room. Or he wrapped it in something and put it out in his shed. Okay, so Sunday morning comes, and let's just say Christians are right. Jesus has been raised from the dead. Guess what? Jesus is going to rise from the dead, not in a cave, but in a shed. Or... Not in a cave, but in your living room. It, it's just silly because the objection doesn't stop the resurrection from happening. All it does is say, "I think we can dis- we can discover the the reason." I mean, we know the tomb was empty. Um, great. Okay. Well, you you're not doing the appearances, and that's the hardest thing to explain. And secondly. Here again, we have a case where we have data for the empty tomb. How much? Enough that I can give 21 evidences for the empty tomb, all of them fulfilling critical criteria for citing certain verses. In other words, I have good reasons on critical grounds for these 21 reasons. And you're going to put up against the 21 reasons? Well, you know... Somebody could have done something. Um, you know, what if you guys are wrong? And and whenever someone responds to me that way, Nip, what if you guys are wrong? I frequently come back. I'll say something like this. They go, well, what if you're wrong? And I'll say, what if we're right? And they'll go, no, really, what if you're wrong? And I go, no, really, what if we're right? My point is, if all you're going to do is give a happenstance response, a what if, my what if in reverse is just as strong as your what if going forward. And my rebuttal is what if. You go, well, you're not giving me any evidences. Wonderful. Do you see the prejudice here? The prejudice of you guys have glasses on. We don't have glasses. You're a theist. I'm a not theist. I don't have any glasses. No, but you have a worldview, mm-hmm. and you have a distinct desire that this thing not be true. And if all you're doing is, what if? I could say, what if not? Mm-hmm. Um, so they don't have data. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what? A necromancer could have taken it. Yes, a necromancer could have taken the body. Now, let's get really serious and give me evidence that a necromancer took the body. Well, I don't have any of that. Then, you know, I want to say, Nick, this isn't very nice, but I'd say, well, then shut up. <laughs> all, all you've got is a possibility. Mm-hmm. If I were to do that on any other subject, um, yeah, we've got a potential murderer here. Bob's supposed to be a murderer, and Bob's on trial today. Bob's over there. He's the one in the handcuffs. 
and the orange uh, jail suit. But how do we know this wasn't Betty? Betty? She has no, you know, she has no stock, stock in this. Yeah, but it could have been Betty. I mean, do you not deny Betty couldn't have done this? No, Betty could have done it. There you go. Now I have a Betty theory. No, you don't. You just made up a theory out of thin air. It's a hypothesis. It's an if with no data. And I bet you Betty's not going to jail for this. Well, you said the appearances are a very hard thing to explain, so let's go to the appearances. The hardest, yeah. Let's go to the appearances here. I mean, for most people, I think we agree our first recording of the appearances is in 1 Corinthians 15, which states to, at the latest, within five years of the event, now, here's a, an objection you can raise out of the start. I mean, Dr. Amos, you said that legends can rise up immediately. Like, even after the death of the Caesar, there was immediately a legend about what, about what happened. How do we know the appearances aren't a legend that just popped up immediately? Okay. First of all, a word about popping up, immediately popping up uh, legends. Um, they can. But, as a rule, they take a while. So that is thoughtful. Just to say they can pop up, they can. So we need to respond to that, and I'll, I'll do that in a second. Mm-hmm. But, but it's, it's, in fact, I tell my students, you know how long it takes a legend to start? Um, it takes a legend to start like this. No, Bob didn't kill that person. Betty did. Whoops, now we have, you know, gossip, or now we have an idle tale, to quote Luke 24. Uh, going around. All right, so how do we know it wasn't? The, the latest research from incredible scholars the, like uh, Larry Hurtado, recently retired from Edinburgh, Richard Baucom from Cambridge, uh, James D.G. Dunn, recently retired from Durham, Tom Wright, Mike Lacona, uh, many others. Recent research has shown that this material comes out of the gate, I like to say it that way, coming out of the gate in 30 AD, it did not take 70 years for people to say, you know what? I think he was the son of God. You know what? (laughs) Maybe he was raised from the dead. It did not take 70 years. Now, you might think I'm just making light of this, but a very popular view uh, Raymond Brown, the dean of New Testament scholars who, who died about 20 years ago, Raymond Brown said that if Jesus would have come back, if he would have returned about 100 A.D. and read the Gospel of John, he would probably say with that exalted Christology in John, he probably would have said, yeah, that's where I was going. That's where I was headed to. So... A lot of people held. Richard Baucom has told me himself he used to hold that view. Jimmy Dunn, James D.G. Dunn, told me that he used to hold that view. That it, Not that Jesus was made deity later, but it increasingly dawned on people as the story got more and more complicated that Jesus was these things. Now scholars realize that coming out of the gate in whatever date we're going to put on the crucifixion, let's say 30 AD, it's the most popular, most popular view. Um, coming out of the gate in 30 AD, you have a high Christology. Well, what's high Christology? I mean, I can't touch it? No, high Christology means you have monotheistic, law-abiding Jews 
worshiping a man who until recently walked and talked on the earth. That's high Christology. Monotheistic law-abiding Jews worshiping a person is high Christology. That's Hurtado's argument. Bauckham's argument is they took verses that applied to Jehovah and the Old Testament and applied them to this person. That is pretty high. Mm -hmm. That happens immediately. And he died. Well, of course, they talked about the death right after. And he was raised. That's all that all comes about in a very short period of time. So short that, as I already said in this interview, our earliest sources emerge about from zero to two years after the cross. Now, you say, yeah, but didn't you already tell me that's not too soon for legend to rise? It is. But it's, sorry, it's not too soon. But what I've just done is give you evidence that's not how the story came about. If people are praising Jesus and worshiping him in, let's say, 30.5 A.D., and they're active in his service doing that, or they're taking Old Testament verses for Jehovah and applying them to Jesus, or they're proclaiming that he was raised from the dead immediately. And by the way, that's the consensus. You said five years for 1 Corinthians 15. That's when Paul received it. But further, what I mean is people had it before Paul, so now we're going way back to 30-ish. But that's the consensus New Testament view today. The consensus New Testament view is that that is in the that creedal da 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 da. It was. It's often thought that it's in two stanzas and it was formalized, sort of like um, I got this. I got these words in my head for a hymn, but now I got to put some music to it. Um, there's a formal process there, and this argument says that it took a little while to get that together, maybe a year, but they were talking about it since the beginning. All right, could it have been legend? It could have been. But the more I have data that has started right away, the more I have data against it. Now, here's where the disciples being willing to die for their faith, which I am... Nick, if you said to me, name a critical scholar who doesn't believe that the disciples devoted the rest of their life to preaching and teaching the gospel and were willing to put their lives in the line. I'm not going to argue right now that they all died as martyrs, but tell me how we know that they were serious about this, because they were willing to die. What's willing to die mean? They continually put themselves in harm's way and didn't mind doing so. Now, if we had that same case today, Let's say uh, Muslim missionaries. How about the Buddhist priests who set themselves on fire to protest the war in Vietnam? Would we dream that the Buddhist priests were not honestly convicted that the Vietnamese war was wrong? No, everybody would grant that. If you willingly give your life and you're sane, then you believe your cause. In fact, we might not even be able to find a case of someone who willingly dies for what they absolutely know to be false, especially when they made it the center of their message. So, when you throw that in there, you've got people proclaiming a high Christology, worship and applying names for God to Jesus, and including the resurrection at a very, very early date, i.e., right after the cross, and from the get-go, 
I mean, look at Stephen. Look at James, the, the uh, son of Zebedee. Right from the beginning, people were willing to give their life and did. Now you're talking, you have to conclude, these people really believe Jesus was raised. And I think Wolfhard Ponneberg says it well, if these people really believe Jesus was raised from the dead, you can say they, you can't say they were lying, because I said really believed. You can say they were mistaken, but you can't say it was a legend that they heard that some other religious founder who never even lived uh, could have been, you know, come out of the tomb. I don't even know what story you'd use for that. But if you said, oh, yeah, well, Jesus isn't worse than them. He must have come out of the grave, too. No, they were willing to die for the proclamation, not this, you know, sort of Jesus was raised, Jesus was alive type thing. It's a much more concrete claim. I saw him. Nick, I saw you last night buying a loaf of bread in the market. Um, you know, it's a very concrete claim. Yes, I'm going to claim you're alive, but I'm claiming something much more specific. I saw you buy a loaf of bread. That's the level of what they were claiming, and they were willing to die for that. So take some other false view if you want to, but legend, the fact that they borrowed the story, doesn't work with that kind of conviction and willingness to die for what they believe to be true. Anyway, I'd like to remind everyone, this is the Deeper Waters podcast. Right now we've got an Easter show <clears throat> talking <clears throat> with Dr. Gary Habermas. But next week, we're going to take a different turn, and we're going to have someone who I am pretty sure is a good friend of Gary Habermas, and that is going to be Francis Beckwith. Now, Dr. Beckwith is going to be talking about his book, Taking Rights Seriously. Now, so, join us next week when we have Dr. Francis Beckworth coming on talking about his book, Taking Rights Seriously. Now, to get back to what we're talking about, uh, Dr. Hammers, you're saying that all these people are, were saying, I saw Jesus. Well, okay. But you can have thousands of Catholics today saying, hey, I saw Mary. She appeared to a whole bunch of us. I mean, yeah. why, why not take that claim just as seriously then? Well, first of all, we have to say this. If those Catholics believed they saw Mary, they could have seen, you could come up with some other theory, but if they were willing to die for that and constantly put themselves in harm's way, let's say they lived in a Muslim culture over in the land that was under control of ISIS, and it was a real danger, and several of their family relatives had already died, and for their faith, and they kept proclaiming that. What you'd say was, first, I think the first building block would be to say they really believed they saw Mary. Well, could somebody have been dressed up like Mary and it was their next door neighbor? Okay, we'll have to consider that. But the fact is, all I'm saying is they thought they saw Mary. Now, if they think they saw Mary, now you have to have comebacks that allow for them totally being sold out about this and believing it. So that's that's kind of what I'm saying with the disciples. When you die, you know, if, if I die for my daughter, 
because she's my daughter. My real reason for dying is my daughter. You can't say, Yuri Habermas was willing to die because he thinks that his local church is the best church in the world. And I go, what? He died for his daughter. He was protecting his daughter. What I mean is you'd have to be sure that what you died for was your sinner belief. And loving my daughter is much more central than my local church is the best church in the city, state, or country. Mm -hmm. um, so if they were willing to die for the belief that they saw Mary, in other words, if it's entirely uh, apropos to, com to compare that to what the disciples did, you'd have to say they believed it. But let's, let's, then you'd have to pick theories that say they really believed it, but they were wrong. But that does narrow it down. Let, let's say a few other things. In the Marian apparition literature, let's say uh, Medjugorje or, you know, Fatima or whatever, the crowds that form, the people who come, tens of thousands have gone to those places, probably hundreds of thousands to Medjugorje. They don't watch Mary. They watch the children who think they've seen Mary. Those people don't see Mary. No, they don't claim to see Mary. I'm not saying, yeah, they say they do, but they don't. I'm saying they don't claim to see Mary. Nick, I know a fella who went over there and, and observed the crowds while the children were saying they were seeing Mary. The crazy thing is, the fellow who told me about this, he went over with a, a, a relative. And this had been, this, the relative, I guess, was pretty well-to-do. He had made almost 20 trips over there, almost 20 trips, and went out on the countryside, on the hillside, wherever, and watched the kids. Um, and my friend said, as far as, my, as far as I know, my relative never saw anything, anything. All right. Now, he's a very devout Catholic. I'm not questioning the man's faith, or, but he, he, the Catholic fella, according to his family relative, as far as he knows, the fella never saw anything. Okay, now that's a that's a lesson for us because if I'm, it could still be a key event for me, and I'm watching the kids. But number one, I don't see Mary. Okay, so they're watching the kids who say they saw Mary. That's a totally different issue. And you say, well, they, yeah, they see signs in the heavens, though. They saw the, they saw the sun skipping, and they saw, you know, things like this. Well, it's funny that the people in the city don't see the sun skipping. The people two countries away don't report the sun was skipping. There is even an eye disease now that's named after the Marian apparitions, and it's kind of a duh kind of disease, but it goes like this. If you stare at the sun, you will do damage to your eye, and your eye will, you know, all you got to do is stare at the sun for, if the sun comes out real quickly and it's in your eyes for five seconds, we're blinking and seeing suns. Well, okay, so that happens. But as far as I know, this guy's never seen anything. But at any rate, they don't claim to see Mary. All right, next, next problem. In fact, they may see nothing. But the, the next issue is that hallucinations are very 
um, rare, radical claims. An hallucination occurs when you believe something so strongly that your brain invents the image of what you think you're seeing. So, is it there? No. A hallucination is radical because you're looking potentially at empty space and imagining your deceased grandfather is standing next to you. But anybody else who's looking sees an empty room. Okay. You go, well, somebody could have passed through the room and you could have think, thought he was somebody else. True. But that's not an hallucination. That's not an hallucination. An hallucination is when you believe something so strongly that you invent an image in the absence of sensory knowledge. Now, there's other kinds of events. One is an, is an illusion. An illusion is what a magician does. Um, yep, somebody just walked through the room, and I convinced you it was your long-dead grandfather. You did see somebody. Okay, great. Nice trick. But that's not an hallucination. And the third category is a delusion. D-E, delusion. A delusion is a psychiatric or psychological state where... You know, you could be taking legal or illegal drugs, or you, your brain could be in a state where we say you're mentally ill, and you are seeing things in your mind that nobody else is going to see. All right, so a delusion is brain problems. An illusion is you see something and take it to be somebody else. You see a man walking around 100 feet away from you and think it's a woman. Like a magic uh, trick. Sorry? Like a magic trick. Yeah, yeah, it can be. We we call magicians. They might even, um, um, you know, correct you and say, "No, I'm not a magician. I'm an illusionist." Mm -hmm. Well, that's called an illusion. So, hallucinations are very rare, and because your brain sees something that nobody else has seen, that's why mass hallucinations are an issue. Nick, I I have written um, pieces with two fellows, two healthcare professionals. One is a PhD in clinical psychology. Now, clinical psychology is the field. It's not just getting a PhD. It's one of the only fields where you can have a PhD in the field and not be called a blank. Like, if you have a PhD in history, it's fair to call you an historian. But if you have a PhD in clinical psychology, I can't call you a clinician. I introduced him that way once, and he told me, don't ever do that again until I do my, what was it, 2,000 hours. See, a medical doctor can be a resident, but they're still an MD. A clinical psychologist with a PhD, you can call them a psychologist, but they have to do their thousands, a lot of clinical work. All right, I did, I did research with a clinical psychologist, PhD, and more, more lately, an MD. We we did we published on the hallucination theory, especially in that latter case. We published on psychiatric theories of resurrect uh, of resurrections. Both of these men, I don't know how how much their surveys overlapped, but they both did literature searches for any experimental data for. Uh, 
for group hallucinations. And they both reported that going back X number of years, I forgot, you know, 25, 50, 100, I don't know, going back X number of years, there's no clinical support, no clinical proof, argument, whatever, that groups see hallucinations. You say, well, 25 people could all see their same hallucination. Yeah, theoretically they could. First of all, that would be extremely rare if they all had one at the same time. That's not a very common concept. 25 would not see them all at one time. Take the people there who I, the example I used with Marion apparitions. Um, chances are they are, they're not going to see 25 hallucinations. And secondly, if they do, they're going to see their own. They won't see the same thing. They will not see the same thing. So they could be separate hallucinations, but they're not going to correspond. So this is very rare. And the literature knows no examples, no published examples in the medical or psychiatric or psychological literature. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty bad. That's pretty rough. And, and again, if this friend of mine's relative, a devout Catholic, can be honest enough to say, as far as my friend knows, I've never seen anything in almost 20 trips. To me, that's an issue. Nick, let me just end with this last thought. What yeah. if I told you that in the Gospels, we, whenever Jesus appears in the Gospels, as far as we know, everybody present sees him. If there's 100 people there, all 100 see him. How many people saw Mary? Uh, the little kids. Now, they were adults later. I mean, kids grow into adults. But they report that they saw Jesus. You know, I understand that not even all the the, the children present saw him. Maybe one did and one didn't standing you, right next to each other. You mean Mary, but, not Jesus, right? I'm sorry, Nick. Yeah, Mary. Um of the 10,000 people who may have come out on any one occasion, what kind of a theory is it, Nick, when 100 out of 100 or 10 out of 10 or 5 out of 5 saw Jesus, but 99% of the people present did not see Mary? Mm -hmm. What kind of a theory is that? Does that make you feel good or does that make you feel bad, badly, that 99% don't see her? That mm -hmm. makes me wonder right away what's going on here. Mm -hmm. We're going to take a little break from our interview format right now, and I'm going to tell you about the important opportunity you can have to donate to Deeper Waters Ministries at this point. See, everything we do is listener-supported, and we depend on listeners like you to help. So if you want to donate to Deeper Waters Christian Ministries, and what you need to do is go to our website at deeperwaters.ddns.net and you'll find the link there, Help Support for Work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. You can click that link and you'll get taken to Risen Jesus. Have you gone to the right place? Yes. Yes, you have. Those are my in-laws right there. You make a donation. They will make sure that it goes to us. And that you know, donation will be tax deductible. We get every penny of it, and we certainly appreciate it. We certainly need it. You can also go on Amazon and buy some ebooks that I've released. And those ebooks include things like oh, Defining Inerrancy or A Creed of the Ages, The Apostles' Creed, and Today's Christian. 
and you can also support us with jewelry. Yeah, you go to the link on our site and you go to Premier Jewelry there. The code words love, my friend Lena Kessler handles all that. And let's suppose you want to buy something for the lady in your life. Where whatever you buy for her, 25% of what you purchase, if you don't know about it, 25% of it will go to deeper waters. So guys, you can get something very good for your ladies, score some bonus points with them, and you'll be supporting a ministry at the same time. Now, I, I really don't know any better way you can get ahead other than that. And if you really like this show, I really encourage you, please, go to the iTunes page, leave a positive review for the show. I, I really love reading your reviews. And now, let's, let's get back. Dr. Habermas, I'd like to ask you, do you have a, any organization or charity you'd like to see people donate to? Uh, not personally. I don't, uh, I mean, I, do I think some charities are great? I sure do. I mean, uh, World Health in Lynchburg, Virginia, but, but those are just things that I, that ministries that we support. Um, there's nothing that anybody could, you know, that I could say what you just said, mm-hmm. or anything would uh, go to this ministry and it would come to me. There's nothing mm-hmm. like this. this is, uh, this is ministry and it's something I like to do. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's getting the word out. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, let's get back to the appearances thing. Now, you're saying you get all these people here who say they saw Jesus. Well, let's look at the biggest one, the 500 claim. I mean, we don't know who these 500 are. We don't have any names, and we don't know where they saw. We don't know if maybe there was a crowd of 10,000 and 500 of them saw Jesus. I mean, how do we know that maybe... There were people around who didn't see Jesus, but you're only talking to people who did see him. Could be, but that's... That, I, I mean, I'm not saying it's not possible. Uh, Mary thought the gardener moved Jesus' body, but I'm just saying the straightforward way that's taken by, as far as I know, these mm-hmm. non-Christian scholars that I said, that I mentioned earlier, they would, I think the majority of them would say, Whatever the 500 thought they were seeing, and whether they were right or wrong, the 500 people present believed they were seeing the risen Jesus. The sense there is that everybody who was involved saw Jesus. All, all I can say is we have a positive claim and no negative qualifications. You can hypothesize a negative qualification as long as you realize that you're doing it without data. And saying 500 saw is more positive. Sure. Do we know everything we want to know? Uh, no. In fact, I don't use the 500 appearance very often, Nick, for reasons like that. I would, I would stick with the uh, 12 apostles, mm-hmm. or called all the apostles. There's three groups. Three group appearances in 1 Corinthians 15, um, 3 through 7. There's three three groups and three uh, three individuals, if you count Paul's uh, pending his appearance to the end of the list. Um, so all I'm saying is what we have says, uh, no, that's not what they're talking about. Could they be talking about something else that's... I mean, it's, I'm not saying it's not possible. I'm just saying we don't have any data for it. Some data is better than no data. 
Mm-hmm. You know, when you talk about the apostles, I mean, I suppose we got a dozen people there because there's the apostles and the disciples and such. There's a different number sometimes. But didn't a similar number of people claim to see the golden plates of Joseph Smith? Sure. Well, I don't know how many. We're only given the names of a few people. Um, yeah, let's talk about Joseph Smith. I was in a debate one time, and a, a very prominent scholar brought that up and said, what about golden plates? Okay, um, Nick, let me play the skeptic here. Let's say there were a half dozen people there, and they all saw the golden plates. Now, I don't know Mormon views enough. You could very well be able to answer this. Did they see the golden plates, or did they see what were claimed to be golden plates with like a like a sheet put over top of them, and they saw the sheet? Did they actually see, did they actually claim to see the golden plates? Well, it's interesting because Rob Bowman was on my show, but he back on my birthday last year on September nineteenth, and we talked about this very claim itself, and he said that uh, the plates were kept at his house, but they were kept under a sheet, and his wife, Emma, was not allowed to look at the plates, and that if some someone would not see the plates unless they had the eyes of faith, right. as it were. Right, so, so basically, it's like the Mary thing, right? Mm-hmm. We're watching people watch what they claim to be plates, that 99% of the people weren't seeing Mary, and 99% of the people weren't seeing the plates. Is that accurate? Yeah, I get it. It could be from what I remember. Okay. Well, I, I, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the show with Rob Bowman, but I want to hear what you have to say. And and I would I would like to, uh, I mean, I'll say that too. It's possible. Okay. My first response is maybe they didn't see the plates. Okay. Here's my second response. Let's say they saw the plates. Let's say a half dozen people, let's be very positive, a half dozen people are there and all of them see the plates. What would these things look like? I don't know. Uh, Something with scribbling on it that was gold in color. Uh, Spray painted, for all I know. Um, Okay. Let's just say there are really some things there. If you see some things that look like gold plates, whatever that, you know, whatever that means, would your first thought be, oh, for crying out loud, this must have been what the angel Moroni gave you. Would your first thought be, an angel dropped this off? Or would your thought be, well, what's that? Now, you might, like the tomb's empty, and you might say, wow, maybe he rose. You might say, this could be the plates, but maybe they're not. I'm just saying there. I wouldn't. I wouldn't have any problem with people seeing golden plates. I don't have an issue. The key is not are there golden plates in the world. The issue is are these plates given, passed on by the angel Moroni. And these are long lost, some kind of inerrant scriptures that talk about Jesus coming to America. The Book of Mormon. There's a huge gap. Number one, if they didn't see the plates, that's a huge objection. But even if you get the plates, 
How do I know? They certainly, from what we know, if my memory serves me correctly, they certainly weren't allowed to finger them, hold them. And if these are plates are in, you know, you know, what kind of language are they in? You need to have, do you have need special glasses to read the plates? We formed the Egyptian, if I'm remembering correctly. Well, that was, that was, yeah, that's the, that's the book of Abraham. I don't know if the whole book of Mormon's like that. But at any rate, all right, let's say, number one, maybe I don't see the plates at all. Number two, let's say I see the plates, but I have no idea what they are, except to say, wow, those look like golden plates. Number three, good chance I can't read it anyway. Four, none of the above is evidence that these came from the angel Moroni and give the word of God. Nothing follows. Each one of these steps are huge steps. All right, mm -hmm. now put number five in there. Of, I don't have numbers, but my recollection is of the people who claim to have seen the plates unless your last name was Smith uh, you know family members didn't all the witnesses either fall away fall into sin or get excommunicated from the church I'd have to listen to Bowman's talk yeah. again I, don't I remember. think something like that is true now if that's true Nick think about how devastating that argument would be for Christianity mm -hmm. you have 12 apostles and you have a few here who are the equivalent of Peter, John, James, the brother of Jesus, who's called an apostle later, Paul, the big four. Uh, let's say three of them fall away because their name's not Jesus. They're not of the Jesus family. Um, let's say three of them fall away. Let's say of the 12 people who said they saw Jesus, 10 of them, because the numbers are very high, I think, on this, on this problem. Mm -hmm. Let's say they fell away, or they got excommunicated for falling into sin, or they believed something else, or you met the guy in a coffee shop three years later and he was a Buddhist. Mm -hmm. I mean, those things would be really devastating to the faith, but that is what happened, as far yeah. as I can recall, mm -hmm. with Mormons. So there, there's five problems right there. Did they see the plates? Number two, okay, so they saw the plates. If they did, what are plates? Oh, they look like golden plates. Okay, really good. Number three, can you read them? Number four, how do you make the argument from they're sitting there on the kitchen table to they were delivered to you by Moroni in their gospel-inspired truth? And number five, why did all these guys fall away, mm -hmm. let alone being willing to give their lives if you want to have a, a parallel to, mm -hmm. to the disciples? So I just think there's some... Major problems. Okay, the number six, Nick. If you want to, if you want to factor in the problem with the Book of Abraham, one of the books in one of the Mormon holy books. So this would be like saying um, the Book of Luke in the New Testament turns out to be an absolute fraud, and we proved it. Not off the scent. You know, your, your listeners will have to listen to Rob Bowman or go back and listen to your podcast or whatever. But let's just say, for whatever reason, everybody agrees that the book of Luke turned out to be a fraud. But unlike the Gospels, where it's one of four, let's say it's the only book that covers this particular subject matter, and it looks like a fraud. It looks like a fraud. Okay, I'm no expert in this area, but this is, this is an issue. And then let's say that Jesus 
to, to equal, Jesus isn't the same as Joseph Smith. Well, I, if you want to say it's Peter. Let's say Peter perpetrated the Luke fraud, or Paul did. And we know for sure that Paul is a fraud, at least with this one book. Now what do I do with 1 Corinthians 15? So that's a sixth problem, and that's huge. To me, these are, if, if, if Smith is the author of all these texts, and he's the main author of their religion, and one of them is a fraud, yeah. Nick, all I'll say is I've got issues. <laughs> but let's move to another issue then. And sometimes a lot some people say today, even in some more scholarly circles, is that, well, you know, the disciples, they were all grieving, they were all distraught, they were emotionally invested. What if they had cognitive dissonance and came up with the idea of appearances in order to assuage themselves, you know, help them deal with what they were experiencing psychologically, supposedly? Yeah. That's good, and, and that's a minority view, but but that is a uh, an alternative theory. Um, Nick, let's let's think about that, um, because you can say that with some cults, Jehovah's Witnesses, Seventh Day. Well, I got to be careful what I call a cult here. Um, Seventh Day Adventists, for example, have kind of gone have gone. Uh, what should we say, Nick? They, Orthodox. They, they've gone worth. Yeah. They, the Seventh-day Adventist scholars meet with evangelicals at the Evangelical Theological Society every year, and I can't tell you who an Adventist is and who an evangelical is. So I've got to be real careful of throwing mm. around the word cult, because I think with a lot of these groups, another one is Garner, you know, Garner Arm, Ted Armstrong's Worldwide Church of God. Uh, a fair, a goodly percentage of that church has gone... Um, Orthodox. Orthodox, from what mm. I know. So I've got to be careful. But I mean, just because it's inaccurate is what I'm saying, and I want to, I want to uh, do this uh, uh, carefully. But whether they're Orthodox or not, in Seventh-day Adventist history, there was a time, what was it, about the halfway through, a third of the way through the 18th century, mm-hmm. where uh, people thought Jesus, 1844 seems to me the year that's sticking in my mind, that they believed that uh, heavenly things were happening and people were selling everything they had and going out on a mountain and waiting waiting to be rescued. And like the middle that happened. And where we get this cognitive dissonance issue that you're talking about is for many of these belief systems, and I suppose political would be the same thing. If you found out that X was a fraud, believe me, their followers would still be clinging to them, at least a certain percentage. And that's cognitive dissonance. So when they found out that nothing happened in 1844, that they walk away from their faith, many of them did not. Okay, so let's say the disciples found out they were a fraud and nobody walked away, and a bunch of people walked away, but we don't hear about them. First of all, that's an absence of evidence, not a theory. But we're saying what if. All right, one real tough thing with that, uh, Nick, is let's go back to the coming out of the gate argument. And coming out of the gate in 30 A.D., we have a very high view of Jesus. What's high view of Jesus? Uh, you have monotheistic, law-abiding Jews saying that this man who was crucified and accursed, according to Old Testament law, was the Son of God, and he should be praised. He's the Alpha and Omega, and we start talking about things like the Book of Revelation, where everybody bows down before this Lamb who was slain, and so on. And they got this very high worship idea of Jesus, 
They believe he was raised from the dead and he appeared. And they're so convinced they're being they're willing to die. Okay. And, and I, if I if I wasn't clear the first time, or if the listeners weren't you know with us all the way through, I want to make it clear. They didn't. The resurrection wasn't one belief among many. It was the center. That's why in First Corinthians, famous passage, First Corinthians fifteen twelve mm-hmm. twenty, Paul says twice two different Greek words, but they mean roughly the same. If Christ has not been raised, our faith is empty, vain, fruitless, without foundation. If Christ has not been raised, we've got nothing. In fact, Paul says it very well, 1 Corinthians 15, 19. If that's all we've got is a false claim, we are of all people most miserable. Bingo. We're the most miserable people in the world. Bad news. Okay. To die for the specific belief of resurrection means that I'm... Whatever else I'm sure of, I'm sure that I saw the risen Jesus. Yeah, but what's your view on Calvinism and uh, free will? Uh, yeah, you go figure that one out, but I'm sure I saw the risen Jesus. Okay, do you believe in something called the rapture? Um, well, I can tell you my views, but I'm not dying for that. I'm dying for my belief that I saw the risen Jesus. Am I just making this up? No, it's part of what we call the gospel. It's the center. Everyone dies. The, God, the, the fact that Jesus died is very, very special. He died for our sins. But there's nothing supernatural there in the actual event. Um, it's the resurrection. And if I die for my belief that I saw the risen Jesus, then that's you have to at least concede that I'm most sure of that. And the cognitive dissonance view, to me... Let's take the Jehovah's Witness view that Jesus is returning, I think, in 1916, and he never comes. So they change it from, well, he came, but it was a spiritual event, and we didn't see it, even though the New Testament says, you know, every eye will see in lightning, as lightning is from the east to the west. You have to change your views. But, but if that's not my key view, all right, so it was a spiritual view. All right, I, I believe you, so I'll kind of go along with that. But if resurrection is my central view and I'm willing to die, and then everybody who believes that and who saw Jesus, is, as far as we know, is willing to die for that belief. Uh, it's, kind of, it's kind of hard to, to argue that that was attack on something we added to the faith, something I could stomach because it wasn't the center of my faith. Resurrection says the center of my faith. And I don't know how Christianity becomes the... Um, leading religion in terms of numbers in the world if there's people going around saying, well, yeah, the resurrection didn't really happen, but that's not my central belief. Um, so I think cognitive dissonance on a number of scores. Here's another one. Cognitive dissonance does not empty a tomb. Mm-hmm. So you have to come up with another theory. Well, I thought you said the empty tomb wasn't. That's true. The empty tomb does not prove a resurrection. But if the data indicate an empty tomb, you have to explain why the tomb was empty. So there, there are other things here that have to be described. How about James and Paul? Two unbelievers, two distinctly different cases. Mm-hmm. James, the brother of Jesus, and Paul, they both come to Jesus they weren't members of the group who thought Jesus was coming in 1916 or that in 1844 the temple was being cleansed and, and heaven and so on. They weren't members of that group. So how does James get involved and how does Paul get involved? These are all issues that people have to solve. 
and I, I don't think it answers the data. I'm talking about cognitive dissonance. Well, let's talk about Paul a little bit then as we get close to our conclusion here. I mean, Paul says he saw Jesus. Yeah, but a lot of people claim to see things all the time. I mean, we have people who make claims about seeing heaven and any number of things that they claim to see. And most of us look and say, that's crazy. But Paul, we say, Paul saw something and say, oh, well, this is serious. I mean, why should we take Paul seriously? And if you say where he was and he was a persecutor, where Gerd Ludemann says maybe he was just dealing with guilt and then all of a sudden he, he switched his mind because he couldn't take the guilt anymore. Maybe he was what, Nick? Dealing with guilt and that led him to uh, have a snap say, okay, maybe maybe I really should look at this differently. Okay. Well, let, let's let's deal with the guilt thing first. That is a very common supposition among critics. And they say, if I were going around killing people, and then I saw some of these poor people and their little children cowering, and I was going to throw them in jail forever and throw away the key, I might have remorse and, okay, What's missing in this theory is evidence. What's missing is that Paul has remorse. Well, it could have happened. Okay, I'll grant it could have happened. But what are your data? All right, now, we haven't said this yet, but of the 13 books that bear Paul's name in the New Testament, critics are willing to concede seven of them. Seven of these critics, they seven of these books they believe are authentic. What does authentic mean? Not inspired. But authentic means Paul's a scholar. He's studying under major people. He was the choice of his elders to go after Christians. So he had to be, I mean, I think of Paul as kind of a scholar athlete. He had to just not have it in the head, but he had to have it physically to go drag these people around and make sure these things happen to him. He's a pretty commanding person. Studied with the right people. Was Nobody would argue that Paul wasn't convinced of his old job that he wasn't doing the right thing, wasn't doing God a favor. He believed he was. So we have all this stuff and pointing to Paul's sincerity, and then all of a sudden, Paul changes. Now, what about the books that bear Paul's name, seven books that critics allow? Several, there are testimonies in those books. For example, uh, in Galatians and in Philippians, where Paul talks about who he was before he came to Christ. He said, I'm a persecutor, I was a Pharisee. Okay, he's a scholar, and he's in the right place, right time. He's the guy who's designated to do this. You know, he'd be the quarterback on the football team, so to speak. He's the top guy for this job, and now he says in these books, I was zealous, he says. He says, I was way beyond the age of my peers. I was far more advanced. Uh, you forgot something, Paul. Don't forget you are suffering from grief. Yeah, I was far behind my peers. I was going with gusto. I was doing God a favor. Uh, Paul, don't forget the grief. Uh, what grief? The grief that you have. Yeah, I was way beyond my peers, and I was... There's no hint in Paul... You know, he could make this godly grief. He could say, and God convicted me, and God said, you've been killing my people, and immediately I felt horrible. He could work in the grief thing very nicely into a testimony. It sounds like a good testimony. Never does. Why what about not? What Romans not 7, though? 
Some people think Roman 7 is probably describing this internal turmoil or he wrestled through that. Now, I don't know that, but Ludemann points to that. Yeah, well, all, all that means, 1 Corinthians 7, I'm sorry, Romans 7, Paul's saying the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I, want to, uh, the things I don't do, I uh, uh, don't want to do, I do. Um, the, the issue there is uh, Paul was, <laughs> okay, was Paul consistent? Not always. Is Paul a sinner? No. Did Paul believe he was a sinner? Yes. Uh, was Paul perfect? No. It, it just Paul's just saying that he was inconsistent. Where does grief come in Romans 7, Nick? It doesn't. It doesn't. You're right. And it's not consistent with anything else Paul claims. But like I said, it'd be very, very nice because Paul could have worked this thing up into a really nice testimony. The God of the universe appeared to me, just convicted me like crazy, and I fell at his feet and said, I've been a bum. It would work in very nicely. But Paul doesn't say anything about grief. So here's another point, Nick. Who's got the facts on their side? Who's got data mm. and who's got what if? Yeah. It just is not according to the evidence. And let's just add, Paul's teaching, if anybody's centered on the resurrection, it's Paul. Paul never falls away, never recants, never gets kicked out of the church, never turns back to persecuting, never has this, you know, if he's psychotic or something, it goes back and forth. We should see some evidence of that. But Paul never, he's steady. And he's the best witness. And you know what, though, to me, Nick, the best thing Paul gives, what Paul contributes is the, the number one thing Paul contributes is not how, you know, how sure he was of this or that. The number one thing Paul contributes, in my opinion, I think Bart Ehrman's, too, from what he says, is that Paul knew the other eyewitnesses. And in Galatians chapter 1, and in the beginning of Galatians 2, totally allowed by critics, Paul goes to Jerusalem on two different occasions to make sure that the original disciples, I think he calls them super apostles, uh, these these pillars, another name for them, these pillars, he goes to make sure that their testimony is the same as his. And he found out that they were preaching the same message, and he reports that in 1 Corinthians 15:11, right after the creed. So they're all on the same page. I think the most important thing Paul's got going for him is that he knew these guys, and he passes on their testimony. Bart Ehrman says, he says, Paul spent 15 days with Peter and James, the brother of Jesus. That's, that's Galatians 1. He says, Paul spent 15 days with them. And then, he, then Bart Ehrman says, I'd like to spend 15 days with, Paul, with uh, James and Peter. And then Bart asks this question. It's a stunning question from the best-known skeptic in America. Bart Ehrman says, where do we have closer to eyewitness testimony than right here? That's the best, that's the closest we have to eyewitness testimony. So to me, Paul's benefit is passing on these guys' testimonies, even for those who don't concede that, that the apostles wrote the four Gospels. Which, by the way, evangelicals don't believe apostles wrote all four Gospels anyway. But, but uh, he says Paul's, Paul's best um, contribution is knowing these guys and passing their testimony on. Yeah, but, you know, we, people see things all the time, and a lot of them we discount. And Paul himself says he was not disobedient to be heavenly vision. I mean, it's not an appearance, man. It's a vision that he had. Yeah. 
Well, it is a vision. I mean, you saw it with your eyes. Vision, you, you have, when you go to the doctor's office, you have your vision checked out. Mm-hmm. You don't go to see hallucinations. You have your vision checked out. The word harao, the word from which we get, it's the, it's the most common text there, First Corinthians 15, where Paul's um, describing Jesus' appearances. And it's often said that arao has a visionary aspect to it. Well, all anybody has to do is is go to the word studies, these these really involved texts that tell you all the uses of the word in the New Testament. Or for you, the English listeners, they can get a copy of the, what's called the Englishman's Greek Concordance. It's, it's in English, although it goes right to the Greek words. And you can look the word up, and guess what? Arao, the word Paul chooses in 1 Corinthians 15, two things about it. Number one, it is used of physical sight. I went to have my vision checked. It's used of physical sight more than it is used of of anything else. In fact, you know, sometimes the word's not even about sight. It's like this. The word means, oh, I understand what you're saying. And they use arao for I understand. But when it appears to see, when it applies to seeing something, it applies to physical sight way more than than spiritual mm-hmm. sight. And secondly, this word arao is the same word Luke uses in the book of Luke for the most physical appearances of all. Because it's in Luke, I like picking James here again, it's in Luke where he says, they were terrified and affrighted, suppose they'd seen a spirit. We mentioned that earlier. But then Jesus says, Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as you see me have. So I'm substantial. Luke uses the word arao. For the Jesus who appears substantially and eats and offers to be touched in front of the disciples. That doesn't sound like a wispy, you know, sort of thing. Garrett Ludeman, the guy you're mentioning, uh, who's often called an atheistic New Testament scholar. I don't know if he's an atheist, but I've certainly heard that a lot. He even says, as do many others, uh, Dom Cross and Bart Ehrman, they say that even though they don't believe in a resurrection, the New Testament writers do. That the New Testament writers' uh, language is the language of sight, not the language of, oh, I understand. It's not the language of, oh, I see... Um, it's the language of sight. Nick, I saw you buying a loaf of bread at the supermarket last night. Um, it's that kind of sight. They even believe that the New Testament teaching is sight, actual physical sight language, not wispy, ghosty language. Okay, now, you're not, not going to have my first breakfast all up. You're just kind of saying, you got the skeptic here. He's heard all this data. He's been listening to the show, and he said, "You know what? You got a lot of data, but here's still my main problem. Your explanation involves a miracle, and yep. I just do not believe a miracle can happen." Yep, that's excellent. You know what, Nick? Tell you the truth, I was sitting here thinking, "Boy, I sure hope he gets to that because that is the number one objection. Mm-hmm. Not that your evidence is lousy." but that your evidence doesn't fit my glasses. Your evidence does not fit the worldview I believe in. Now, there's a number of of things I would say to that. Um, on, on a certain level, I would say, okay, 
I'll answer that. But before we move on, you do admit there's something here, right? I mean, you're saying, yeah, you've got good evidence, but for what? I don't believe in the supernatural. Okay, so you're allowing good evidence. Okay, that's number one. Second, I, I do not know that the Shroud of Turin is a very gun of Jesus. I've co-authored two books, and my co-author was one of the guys. He was the editor and spokesman for the team of scientists that did the 1970s. Uh, a lot of people did checking, but he was one of the original people. Um, and so I got to uh, learn a lot about this that I would not have already learned. And if the shroud is a barrier garment of Jesus, I'll just say it's intriguing and it's decent evidence. And more more man, woman, hours have gone in studying the shroud than any other archaeological uh, artifact in history. It can't not only has it not been disproven, it can't even be duplicated from what we know. But why is this different? Why am I bringing this up? Because it may be a record. The image on the shroud is a quasi-photograph. It's a photographic negative. And it could be a photograph of the resurrection. That's what some people have said. So if you go, well, I don't believe in the supernatural. You know, it would help me if God would just appear right here before me. Hey, just think about it. Maybe the shroud is the resurrection of Jesus. So I'm just saying that you I'm could have... I'm going to jump in there right quick at this point and say if someone wants more on the shroud... I think February 13th this year, my interview of Mark Antonacci on his book, Test the Shroud. Yeah, and, and the, by far the best website, Shroud.com, is put together by a very beloved person. His name is Barry Schwartz. He's a Jewish scholar who was part of the 1978 investigation. Barry's not a Christian, and yet he believes the Shroud is authentic. So figure that out. Okay, mm -hmm. so that's the second one. Uh, so... We have some good evidence that needs to be uncovered. Number two, what do you think about the shroud there? You're looking at it with your own eyes, possibly. Number three, one of the guys who comes up with this objection, it's in a, he's got an essay in a book called Miracles, edited by Richard Swinburne. I'm looking at it right here in my uh, study. And he makes this objection that, that you're making, but he allows, in the article, the philosopher allows that if God exists, it changes the whole tune here. Because if you said there's no supernatural, and then I get God in the deal, whoa, now i got to be open to resurrection. So there's, there's a third move. Hmm. Okay, Number one, there's good evidence for what I'm saying anyway. Number two, what do you do with the shroud? Number three, if there's God, God would change the equation. Because if there's God, these things are possible. Fourthly, I've done a lot of publishing, probably second only to the resurrection. Um, a lot of writing, thinking, studying. Since 1972, I've been studying the near-death near experiences. Now, with near-death experiences, let me just cut to the chase here because we don't have a lot of time. Um, I'm not talking about, oh, beautiful tunnels and lights, and I felt wonderful, and man, I wasn't afraid to die anymore. That's not, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about evidential cases. Now, I'm going to have to leave that to... Have you done a program on that already, Nick? I haven't got to do that yet, though. I did do some a little bit with J. Steve Miller on near-death experiences. I don't okay. think we, we got into evidential ones too much. Okay, well, there's some evidential ones where while the person has no measurable brain or heart activity, they say they're up above their body and they're not in any position. Let's say they're in a room with no windows and they like inside a hospital and they report something that happens outside 
Um, and then later you get a report where that indeed happened, but their brain shouldn't have been operating. Mm. Over a hundred of these evidential cases have been published. And a, now this is not official, this is not scholarly, but apparently this has a lot of influence on Americans and around the world, people who now believe in the afterlife. It's causing numbers to go way up. Okay, whatever. If there's an afterlife, now you've got to be open to resurrection. The guy goes, why, pray tell? Well, because if there's an afterlife, afterlife is the category into which resurrection fits. And when you say, oh, no, that would be a miracle. Well, by the way, I don't think NDEs are miracles, but I do think they evidence the supernatural realm. In other words, um, a Buddhist, a Hindu, a Christian, a Jew, and a Muslim could all agree that people have near-death experiences. The odd man out is the naturalist. Who's the naturalist? The guy who asks this objection. Mm -hmm. He's the odd man out. So if there's a realm called afterlife, all I'm saying is you have to be open to something called resurrection. And someday... The, the event in the New Testament that's tied most to the resurrection of Jesus is the resurrection of believers. Almost 20 times we're told that if you are in Christ, if you said, I do to Jesus, if you made a commitment to him, then you will be raised like him. So there is a direct argument. I call it the yellow brick road. Yellow brick road leads you to Oz. The gospel yellow brick road takes you to eternity. If there is an eternity... Now I have to be open to this event called called resurrection that is a little snapshot of eternity early. It's an early blessing. It's like, uh, Nick, Christmas isn't until next week, but I'm going to give you a present early. Resurrection is an early present uh, with looking forward to Christmas. Well, that's what resurrection is. And if there's an eternity... I'll tell you what, if you're a skeptic, it looks to me like it's closing in on you. So, good evidence, number one. Number two, shroud. What do you do with something physical you can look at? Three, if there's a God, it all changes. And number four, if there's an afterlife, it all changes. So, <laughs> I, I wouldn't be very secure if I were a skeptic looking at this kind of evidence. Yeah, I'm surprised you didn't add in number five, which is the one that came up with immediately. Craig Keener's research oh, on miracles going on today. Yeah, I agree with you, Nick. I have a, a, a PowerPoint that I give on how do we know naturalism is crumbling today. The worldview, the glasses that people, that skeptics say they don't have, the glasses that tell them the supernatural doesn't occur. I list 10 arguments. So if you want the rest of them, I mean, we can talk about intelligent design, we can talk about fine-tuning, we can talk about near-death experiences. Now, on all those, the religions stand shoulder to shoulder and go, yep, you're right. But what about the ones that say Christianity's correct? I do six of them. I do uh, Craig Keener's miracles argument, the fact that Jesus predicted his resurrection ahead of time. That's major. People don't understand. If, if Critics are willing to admit this. Michael Lacona, in my opinion, has written the best article, which later has worked its way into his dissertation, on an argument for, critical argument, done the way critics argue, for the predictions. The key, the predictions are huge. Because if Jesus predicted his resurrection ahead of time, and then was raised, that means that this is not just an odd event. It means that he knew about, was in control of, was party to, something that's very unexpected that later occurred. 
That means resurrection moves out of the, whoa, that's crazy view, into the, whoa, that's part of a whole world view. So now it surrounds, you know, historical events are not self-interpreting. We need philosophical context, theological context for them. And predicting it shows that. Uh, here's another one. Jesus is now believed, when I was in grad school, it was not believed that Jesus was a miracle worker. If you said you believed Jesus was a miracle worker in the Gospels, they would say, oh, are you evangelical? Or, oh, are you conservative Catholic? You, right away you had identified yourself. But today, the majority view is that Jesus did things, if not just what the Gospels claim. He did those sorts of things 24-7. Well, that says something else special about Jesus and his worldview. I also talk about the resurrection. I also talk about the shroud. So those are six areas I have four that say that some kind of theism is true, and six that say Jesus, uh, in particular, Christianity. And you're right, Nick, um, the, the present-day miracles, not just, oh, wow, well, I got this friend, and he's better now. I'm talking about pre- and post-MRIs, pre- and post-CAT scans, pre- and post-X-rays, and I refer, I'm sure you've done this many times, but I would refer your listeners to Craig Keener's uh, majestic two-volume, 1,100-page work called Miracles from Baker Academic. And I, and I would also refer him to the interview I did with him back on August 10th of 2013 on that subject. But, Dr. Habermas, we've come to the end of our show here, unfortunately, and there's so much more we could talk about. But if yep. people want to find out more about you and what you've done, do you have a blog or a website, an email, where they can get in touch with you? Yeah, Nick, thanks for asking. I, I have a website. It's simply GaryHabermas.com. No bells, whistles, uppercase. It's not case sensitive. G-A-R-Y-H-A-B-E-R-M-A-S.com. Mm -hmm. I don't sell anything on my website. There's no books for sale, nothing else. In fact, I've got books. I'll tell you about my books there, but I just send you to Amazon. I don't sell them. Um, Everything on the website is for the use of the people who tune in. There's a lot on near-death experiences, a lot on afterlife, a lot on doubt. Two of my three doubt books are available freely on uh, on the website, and they can download them. And I have all this resurrection material. So I would love people to go there because I don't have anything there except to hopefully meet people's needs. Mm -hmm. Do you have any uh, fine or uh, thoughts you'd like to leave with Deeper Waters audience? Well, Nick, you know, you said there's so much more we could do. Um, I would talk about the importance of the resurrection. Now, right here at the end, we started getting into it. But um, like I said, resurrection is not self-interpreting. It has to be interpreted according to a system. Uh, otherwise, you're scratching your head and saying, you know, what about the butler? Um, if the resurrection is the center of Christianity and if Jesus was raised, and there's another half dozen evidences, at least, that indicate Christianity's truth, specifically, that a bunch of others that just say religion in general is. And this is the key to the Christian yellow brick road, what we call the gospel. You follow the yellow brick road, you end up in Oz, or you follow the scarlet ribbon that we call the gospel message, or the Romans road. You know, it's interesting, I'm talking about roads here, the scarlet ribbon, the yellow brick road. There is a plan of salvation approach called the Romans road. This weaving through scripture that we call the gospel, the end of it is eternal life. It's been offered uh, in the New Testament, like I said, almost 20 times. We're told that believers will rise. 
people can have issues with the problem of pain. They can say, who wrote the book of Hebrews? They could say, when does the rapture happen? They could say, who is right about sovereignty, free will? The, the, the issue is, if you stay on the yellow brick road, don't get off the road. Don't throw apples at the apple trees there that are picking at you when you're going down the yellow brick road, as in the movie. Uh, stay on the road. And when you stay on the road, it takes you right to eternal life. There's a lot practical here. I'll give you just one example. In First Thessalonians, Paul says, we grieve. People die, we grieve. My wife, I'm remarried, Nick, but as you know, yeah. but in 1995, my wife, the mother of my children, died of stomach cancer. She's only 43 years old, four children at home. The youngest was only nine years old. You know, you'd think that, I mean, this and this is right. Paul says in First Thessalonians, we grieve, but not as those without hope. What's the difference between grieving with hope and grieving without hope? Jesus wept at his friend Lazarus's tomb. What's the difference of grieving with hope and without hope? The difference is eternity. And if, if I know I'm going to see somebody again, uh, guess what? That's really important to me. Mm -hmm. And saying, I don't know why my wife died, but I'm glad we can all be together again someday, that's a world of difference. So that's just one practical difference that the resurrection makes. And people can laugh and say, oh, pie in the sky and the sweep by and by. Well, that's not the Christian hope. The Christian hope says you should be of so much, you should be so heavenly minded that we can be of much earthly good. We should, we should be involved in people's lives, right? First Corinthians fifteen fifty eight. Paul says, "Be steadfast." That's how the text ends. Next verse, he says, "Therefore, get your wallets out. We're going to be taking up money for poor Christians in Jerusalem." So, belief in the resurrection should issue into work and things like this, like like your podcast. Yeah, yeah. It should be issue. It should be working into things that change people's lives. Well, Dr. Hammond, I'd like to thank you for coming on this Easter Saturday, and I hope we'll see you here again sometime. Thank you very much, Nick. Had a great time. Your questions were fantastic. You did some good preparation for this. Sounds like you were doing some research for your program, too. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to I, go, I, I go ahead. Great time with you. Thanks, mm -hmm. Nick, for the, uh, for the time. Well, I can remind everyone that next week, Francis Beckworth is going to be coming on to talk about his book, Taking Rights Seriously. And, you know, Dr. Hammond, I can think of really no better way to end this than by saying, he is risen. And he is risen indeed. And I'm Nick Peters, and I will see you again next Saturday.